Welcome to the History Quill podcast, all about writing and publishing historical fiction, brought to you by the History Quill, the home of historical fiction writers. Welcome to what is the first episode of our second season, our second series of the History Quill podcast. I am historical fiction novelist Julia Kelly, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Theodore Brune. Theo, how are you? I'm doing really, really well, Julia. It's been a little while since we've been together and a few things have happened, some big events. So I must offer you my congratulations. Thank you. Why don't you tell tell our listeners what's happened since the end of season one? Well, it's sort of everything going on in the background. I, you know, it's funny. I was listening to an episode of season one earlier and I started out saying I was really stressed and I said it was because I was on deadline. That was true, but I was also planning a wedding at the same time. And that wedding has now happily happened. Really wonderful day. And we also went on our honeymoon. So I am really getting back into my working life with the, all of the newlywed bliss that everybody always talks about. Oh, that's so good to hear. It's a new chapter in, in all senses, really. (laughs) Absolutely. It is. It is. So no, it's been absolutely wonderful. And, uh, you know, the deadlines never stop. I'm still working on various things, but it was particularly sweet to have a bit of a break to get married and to enjoy some, some time off on a honeymoon. And where did you go on your honeymoon? We went to Mauritius, which was wonderful. I spent a lot of time sitting under an umbrella so that I didn't get sunburned because I am very pale. And I read a ton of books and that was just fantastic. <laughs> well, you've got actual license just to read, not to write, and, uh, exactly. and not put too much pressure on yourself. Well, I'm sure you, you congratulations in all senses, and, and I'm sure you deserve the break as well. But but there were many things going on because you had a, a novel out. I know we both had a novel out the same week, I oh think. Oh, my goodness. We? We did. We did. A Traitor in Whitehall. I, I've, I'm about halfway through it and I love it. It's brilliant. So, oh, thank you. Well, yes. So I was trying to finish it in, turn, in time for this, but failed <laughs> miserably because lots of other things going on. But it's, it's fantastic. But everyone should go and buy it. Thank you. Yes, it came out. And then I think two days afterwards, your latest came out as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. A Savage Moon. So, yeah. That's that's been my latest, although I've got a, a short story coming out for Christmas, which is completely the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of genre and vibe. <laughs> I was I was delighted to see that. So by the time this episode comes out, Christmas will have come and gone. But of, yes, course, of course, Christmas stories yes. are forever. So uh, we do <laughs> encourage Christmas, people to go check that out. <laughs> yes, do do. I mean, it's like a it's like a warm cup of hot chocolate really as a, as the stories go so wonderful well we are going to be maybe not so much warm cup of hot chocolate because i think there's quite a lot of deep emotional turmoil and maybe some swords and some other things going on in this uh, <laughs> in this next episode but we are going to be interviewing a friend of yours so would you like to give us the little teaser of who we're speaking to absolutely we are going to be chatting to Giles Christian, who is now a friend of mine. I fir- he first came on my radar as uh, another author, or in a way, one of the original authors operating in, in the space that I move in, um, sort of early dark age fiction. But um, he's a great guy, and I'm very much looking forward to chatting with him. Well, it's an absolute delight to welcome my friend and fellow Dark Age novelist, 
Giles Christian to the History Coil podcast. And I'll just give you a bit of an intro because I do know quite a lot about you. I've been following your career ever since your debut back in 2009 when you first published Blood Eye, which was the first of your Raven trilogy, an instant bestseller, I think I'm right in saying. And basically all your books have been bestsellers since then. After the Raven trilogy came the Sigurd trilogy, another Viking saga, and two interspersed with two Civil War books. And uh, more recently, he's been doing an Arthurian trilogy, which is just about to reach its climax, I think, in January 2024. Is that the release of Arthur, I believe? Uh, June, actually. Oh, is it June? It's been pushed back. Yeah, yeah. Um, Or from what I thought, anyway. But not only is he a historical novelist, he's multi-talented, this this man. He recently brought out a contemporary thriller called Where Blood Runs Cold, which, which actually won the Wilbur Smith Adventure Writing Prize in 2022. And there's all kinds of other strings to his bow, but it's just generally a, a great pleasure to welcome you to the History Quill, Giles. Thanks for coming and joining us. Thank you for the kind invitation, Theo and Julia. Very, very, very nice to be here. Well, shall we kick off in a general sense? Because, you know, you've made a name for yourself in, as I said, in the deep, dark ages, but which, you know, we've got a bit of a theme for for today's episode, which is about legend and myth. And I suppose that area of history, you know, you could argue there's lesser known or, or there's more scope to to kind of bring in the mythic, if you like, bring in legend. But, but in general terms, what kind of attracted you to um, that area of history in particular? Well, this would have to be because my mother is Norwegian. And so I'm half Norwegian and having spent a lot of time in Norway as a child growing up in the fjords and around the around the fjords, just imagining Vikings, imagining people getting on a long ship and going off raiding across the sea. And it was just something that was always weaving in my imagination. But that wasn't actually the first sort of long form fiction that I wrote. I wrote a novel set during the first crusade. And I went, uh, it was a subject I was interested in. I, I went and I was living in London at the time and I went and did a diploma in uh, medieval history and crusades and things like that just to sort of get some research under my belt and wrote a very long 166,000 word novel set during the first crusade and didn't do anything with it. I think I, I didn't really know what to do with it in those days. I, I, I think I sent it off to a couple of publishers just sort of not knowing that you need an agent and, and I didn't know how any of it worked and I didn't get anywhere with it and I'm glad I didn't because... <laughs> A couple of times I've since looked at that manuscript and I've thought, <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> but the thing about writing that, writing 166,000 useless words is that it it was great practice. And when I sort of felt that nothing was going to happen with that story, then I jumped into the Viking Age and thought, oh, well, let's let's write a Viking novel. It was actually because I was on a, I was on a, my brother's stag do and we went to Oslo and uh, I was organizing. And one of the things we, we did, which was very cultured for a stag, was to go <laughs> to the Viking ship museum yeah. just outside Oslo. Yeah. And where you've got the, mo- the two most beautiful and iconic Viking ships preserved and there. And you can reach out and touch them across the rope. Of course, you're not supposed to, but you have to do it. Uh, the Gogstad and the Ilseberg ship. And... And with the bunch of guys that I was with on this stag do, I was looking at them thinking, oh, this is kind of like we're doing what the Vikings were doing. And just kind of imagining each of the guys in the, in the group 
on one of the row benches of this longship and, and imagining us going out on, on an adventure. And uh, so that's where the idea came from for the first Viking novel, Raven Blood Eye. I love it. That feels incredibly cinematic. Uh, but I can imagine you all uh, enjoying your stag do, but also doing something cultural. I wanted, before we go any further in, and dive into historical epic, I wanted to ask, how would you characterize the genre? And what do you think readers are looking for when they pick up a historical epic? Yeah, I don't know if my Viking books were epics in that sense. I remember when I was first trying to get a publishing deal, I was an agent actually, and I was living in New York and I'd got an agent in New York, Writer's House, and they took Raven Blood Eye and tried to find a publisher for it and, and, and were unsuccessful. And then I was talking to an agent in the UK and they also represent Con Igledon. And I was talking to Con's agent about my manuscript about Raven Blood Eye. And what she was sort of quite rightly saying was that the thing about Con's books is they are epic. I mean, he takes a subject and he, and a big subject at that or a character in history and just sort of, it's, it's massive, you know, he, he, he you know, uh, like the Genghis books, for example. And, and she was saying, you know, that's what he does. And, and I was thinking, yeah, and he does it so well. And, and so my argument, my counter argument was as to why they should consider taking me was that I do something that's maybe the opposite of that. I, I, my stories tend to be quite intimate. So they're not really about the, the major events of history. They're just, they tend to be about a couple of guys or a, a group of people experiencing their life with this thing going on uh, in the background. And it was obviously, I was just blagging it because I didn't really know how else to, to pitch this thing. <laughs> Sounds convincing. Uh, but, but, uh, you got but, me. Yeah, I just I just thought I'm going to bring it in and it's, it's sort of a microscope of just a, a, just the, the human experience of, of these people involved in whatever's going on. And, and um, yeah, obviously it works because I got represented and uh, right and um, AMP did, did get me a deal with Transworld uh, very, very soon after that. So, um, so yeah, epic in, you know, I've written two books during the Civil War. Obviously, the Civil War is kind of a big, big yes. subject matter. But, but I think sometimes that can be off-putting for readers because they, the Civil War is very complicated. There's religious and political kind of aspects to it that are hard to wrestle with. And I was very keen to sort of, for my publishers to, to not sell it about a novel. It's not a novel about the English Civil War. It's about two brothers and a sister who find themselves on opposing sides during the English Civil War. And it's really about the family. So I, for me, talking about writing epic books is, is about bringing it into something very personal and, and, and sort of letting the other stuff play out in the background. There, it feels like there is something harking back to that tradition of you know, the, this, I don't know if you want to call them the source material of the Viking world and all these sagas and mythological poetry and, and stories that can, as they, as you say, start quite small with an individual, you know, gets caught up in a story and then the story gets bigger and bigger. Cause, cause certainly when you look at your, what you've done and then, it, and then looking back, you think, wow, what an amazing saga, a sort of epic saga. And I suppose you can use the word epic in a pretty loose sense. But yours, you know, your, when I look at your body of work, it's nothing if not ambitious. Do you feel like, I mean, you've got these trilogies of, of Viking sagas, and then more obviously, I suppose, if we're talking about legend and epic, the Arthurian sort of world. But whether you, 
you just launch out into them. And then in retrospect, you look back and go, wow, that was an awfully big story I just told. But there must be a difference when you enter into Arthur's world where, you know, in a sense, we're more familiar with that in, in talking in terms of legend and epic and what have you. Did, was there a difference in terms of how you approached the Arthurian stuff vis-a-vis -vis the, the Viking stuff? Yeah, that the I think the similarity between the Viking books and the Arthurian books is that there isn't much historical sort of evidence, or certainly in terms of source material, there's no written stuff for the Vikings that's written from their perspective. It's all it's all Christian monks and chroniclers that are writing. So, um, and the Arthurian story, well, there isn't one story. There's there are dozens and dozens and dozens of different Arthurian sort of myths. So what? why that's attractive for me is that it enables me to fill in all the gaps of which there are so many. So the Civil War books were more difficult. It's fairly recent history. There's so much written about it. There's so much evidence all around you. You know, you go to a, a village church in, in England and it, it was probably standing there during the English Civil War. So you have to describe it exactly as it is, you know, because people are going to tell you otherwise if you get it wrong. Whereas the thing about the Viking books and the Arthurian books is there's so much space for me to, to imagine my own version of events. Uh, if I look at the Arthur, like Lancelot, for example, the reason I wrote Lancelot was because, well, if I'm being cynical, I could say that it, I saw an opportunity there to tap into an, an unexplored subject matter. Everybody's read books about Arthur and Merlin crops up all the time but you never really see anything about Lancelot. So I thought there's something that that's an untapped sort of seam of, of potential story gold. And uh, that's what I, that's sort of what drew me initially to the idea of that. It was just at first, just a title idea, Lancelot, that sounds cool. And then as I got into it, I, I thought, here is almost a blank canvas for me to create my own version of this character. Obviously, the Bernard Cornwall Lancelot is sort of famous for being such a baddie and, and, a, and a wonderful villain. So it, I also had in my mind, well, I, this was my opportunity to rehabilitate um, Lancelot for the reader, for the readership of the Bernard Cornwall novels. So, but, but really, it was for me blank canvas. And that's what excites me. I don't want to have to follow a chain of events that's been told already because Where's the fun in that? I'm, I'm creative. That's just I'm not academic. I, I'm you know I'm, I'm creative, and all I want to do is create new stuff where there was nothing before. So I could look at the myths, and I could try and interpret aspects of them, and put them in the novels in maybe subtle ways. For example, my round table in Lancelot, I think, is just the stump of an oak tree, and I don't really say it's. Arthur's Round Table, but there's maybe a hint there that they're gathered, the warriors are gathered around the stump of a, a massive ancient oak tree. Or uh, the Lady in the Lake is a priestess up in Scotland who symbolically lifts a sword out of out of a pool of water, and, and that's the, which is Excalibur, and that's the Lady in the Lake. Or I loved your I loved your Holy Grail. If it was the Holy Grail in Camelot, it was this sort of drinking cauldron cup that they went off in search of, isn't that? Oh, in the, that, in the caves on the yeah, Isle yeah, of Man, I think. Well, that's another one where I got the, the myth of the Green Knight idea. I, 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 because if you look at the Arthurian myths, 
they're bonkers. The, yeah. They don't really make a lot of sense. And it's hard to, if you're setting your story in sort of a sub-Roman Britain, the, uh, as I am, it's sort of a very real, grounded, yes, aspects of sort of magic and belief, but a grounded world. It's hard to include the myths because they're, they're full of giants and magic and dragons and giant boars and things that really don't make any sense. So it's hard, it's hard to include them. So then you have to think of a way of including them. So for me, my green knight in Camelot was a warrior who's part of a community who live in copper caves in the Isle of Man, or you know what it's like. And the copper has has tainted their skin because that's where they live all the time. So they've got this kind of green taint to the skin, or this warrior has. And for me, that's sort of the origins of the the Green Knight. And you know, it's just it's just having fun with it. That's 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 what I enjoy. Can you dig a little bit more into how you made those decisions to distinguish this very, very well-known character who, as as you say, you know, there's a wonderful, very different representation in Bernard Cornwall's books. You see it all through, you know, cartoons and myths and even Monty Python. You know, what is it that you decided you wanted to write about in terms of character and how did you bring that out, knowing that there's this whole background of myth and pop culture behind Lancelot? Yeah, well, as you say, it's the most famous love triangle in Western literature, really, the the idea of Lancelot and, and Arthur and Guinevere. And that was obviously central to my story, even though Arthur doesn't come into it till rather late in the book. For me, there was this whole, the complicated nature of love, really, and the fact that Lancelot and Arthur, you know, they are the best of friends they have. They, they love each other but they both love Guinevere and how does that how does that play out on a human level and I, originally I was going to write and it was going to be in your words an epic kind of tale of the the Arthurian myths and that's what it was kind of that's what I set out to do but then in writing in writing it things changed like my my father um, sadly uh, became ill when I just started the book and uh, was dying as I was writing it. And that changed everything about the book for me. Um, I don't think on a conscious level, but just because of the place I was in psychologically, I was, I was sad, I was grieving. And the themes of loss, love and loss, and things that can now never be, those kind of aspects wove themselves into the book and it ended up being quite a different book from the one that I perhaps set out to write. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of probably doesn't happen very often. That, that's, you know, such an emotional thing kind of influences the, the book in that sense. But it's, it's the one book of mine where I think out of all of them, it's the one where people seem to have taken it to their hearts and, I can only assume that's because my heart was on the, you know, on the page as I was writing it. You know? and, and yeah, that's, I guess that's the way art works sometimes. Yeah. I think that uh, it is an amazing book. If anyone hasn't read it, it was, you know, it's one of those ones where you just have to lay it aside when you close the final page and just sit and be quiet for a while and just think about what's just happened. But, and, and, and the, the emotion that, you as an author must, or you as a, a person, individual going through that grieving process, sort of comes out this kind of not is bathos the right word, probably not that sort of tragic undertow to that book. But then, in a way, it, 
it translates into Camelot, I found, I read it, I think it was in the first lockdown. And like the whole of the world had changed and gosh, it's changed a lot since then as well. And and yet part, part of the essence of that book I felt was again, this band of sort of brave idealists in a way, like trying to keep the dream alive, I think was one of the taglines, wasn't it? And and it, it was interesting. I know, you know, we're not here to sort of put anyone on the spot about myth making and the connection with with the sort of general culture. But I got the sense that this idea of Arthur as a myth obviously has been re reworked, reimagined many, many times. And yet there was something about the way you're doing it now. And I can only look forward to the the the, the third book in this trilogy that seems to sort of say something about the uncertainty of the, these times, like the fact that you kind of got to hold hold on to something in spite of all that's going on around you. And that, that may be a subconscious thing going on in you or not. I don't know. Do you feel like that there's something of the, the bleeding of our culture, our present day culture that inevitably comes into the books that you write that happen to be about something in the deep past? It, if there is, it's, it is subconscious. And I think it's almost one of those things where I hear you speaking like that. And I think, oh, that's clever. I should have meant that, you know, and it's like when you were at school and your English teacher, it's, it's sort of, you've got to, t- you've got to work out what the poet meant when he was writing the poem and, and maybe you're miles off and, and maybe, and maybe not. Uh, for me, it was the experience of, uh, in Camelot, the experience of Galahad and the idea of legacy. And I think that trailed on from sort of Lancelot. Uh, uh, Lancelot, his father, once he's gone, it's it was about how does Galahad, what's his place in the world, and and how much is he free to choose his own path, and how much is already sort of preordained because of whose son he is. Um, so they were again for me, it's about bringing it down to sort of a microcosm of the human experience, the human condition. I think rather than looking at sort of the, the world today and making a, a, a social comment, uh, although even with Arthur as well, the, the, the next novel, it's for me, there's always something poignant about time moving on and about glory being in the past. And I think maybe that's just a natural part of the aging process. You know, we remember when we were young and, and everything was ours and, you know, everything was so exciting and vibrant and we were legends, you know, in our own lunchtime. But that idea of never being able to go back to that moment and, and sort of step in the same part of the river again, because it's, it's gone. Uh, that's always very poignant for me. And I think that that does definitely feed in. So there is an idea in, in, in Camelot uh, um, and Lancelot of a fading world of, of, of something disappearing. And yes, certain individuals trying to hold on, trying to cling on to it and, and maybe even to daring to dream about recovering something that, that uh, we all know can never really, can never really be. Um, and that's and that's sad. I think a lot of my books are sad nowadays. I don't know why, but when I was my Viking books used to be just sort of swashbuckling. They're sort of swashbuckling. Absolutely, they're joyous, aren't they? That's just like I don't, you know, we're coming at you, so you better stand out the way. <laughs> exactly. Certainly, the, the first trilogy is very much a bunch of Vikings running around doing Viking stuff, and I make no apologies for that. You know, it's. Um, 
it's of its time. But as I've gone on as a novelist, I've found that I, I'm only really interested in writing something now if I have to really engage on a sort of heart and soul level. Uh, it has, there has to be something that moves me. So the thriller, it was, it was a father and daughter survival thriller in the Norwegian Arctic. And the fears of a parent and, and, and how, how fearful I am of, for the sakes of my children and what I would do and if, you know, if it came down to having to look after them and those kind of fears. So yeah, it's, it's the books become more personal and more retro introspective as I've gone on. So I don't know, which is, you know, I don't think it's healthy actually, frankly, I, I don't know. Some people might say it's cathartic, but I'm not sure. I'm really not sure it's good to be spending your day all day going into these dark places. I don't know. What do you think? It's interesting you say that. I, I think I'm thinking about it now, and I think I've also gone a slightly darker <laughs> darker path in different periods of time in my career. And I, I do know that at the end of the day, it takes me longer, especially in those books, to pull myself out of it and to sort of come back to the real world and resurface a bit. Um, Theo, I don't know if you've had the same experience. Yeah, I was, I mean, the, the, the last sort of big book I wrote along these lines, it absolutely shattered me. <laughs> I was destroyed by it. Not only the process of it, but it was just exhausting. I mean, it was very, there was quite a lot of darkness in that as well, but I was trying to counter it with some light as well. And yeah, I, I think maybe that's why it takes us a bit of a while to, you know, in our particular little corner of the the, the historical writing world's Giles, I know we we know we've got a few colleagues who just burn out, churn out these books, bam, 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 like two a year. And I'm just looking at them going, how do you do it? I just <laughs> emotionally, I couldn't take it. But maybe yeah, that's because yeah. they're slightly different kind of books. I agree. What I wouldn't, I mean, there is, there is, there are reasons to write books that you don't feel like you're, you really want to go on that emotional journey. But I, I just can't, every time I sit down and try and write one, it doesn't really come out. So I, you want to, you want to be in, in, you want to be interested by your own characters. And therefore there's probably more going on than there could be if you were going to write something a bit lighter and quicker. Yeah. Char character is everything. For me, it's really, I know people say character is story and story is character or plot, but it, it, and it's true because if you don't care about these characters, if you don't really, really immerse yourself in these characters, then who cares if they make it or not, if they overcome these challenges that you, as an author, sadistically put in their way every day? <laughs> I think particularly particularly in that world of swords and splatter, as it were, it's like it can just become Monty. It can become just Monty Python, can't it? It's just like, how about you? You know, and off comes another limb. You know, it's got to be something. We've all cut on. our we've all cut our hands on a kitchen knife, and that feeling of it just going into the knife, going into a finger, and it's just a terrible, terrible feeling. And you think, I mean, we're talking about people getting their limbs hacked off with swords here. You can't really take that lightly. I don't think. No. Well, Giles, I love it when somebody gives me a perfect segue into into my next question. Um, so you're talking about character and and wanting to write about characters that you really care about. I was having a nose around on your website, and I really liked this quote when looking at the section about your work in the gaming world. The quote is, every great game starts with a great story and great characterization, which I thought was a, a wonderful way to set up 
narrative gaming and to connect into also obviously your work as an author. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that has informed your your novel writing and how your novel writing has informed your writing for video games. Yeah, so I'm working on a game called um, Norse, which is a Viking a Viking game, a turn-based tactical game. And um, it's hopefully going to be out next year. And they came to me as a, they looked for Viking authors, I think, and that's literally just Googled and, and found me. This was back in 2016. And um, I've been involved in writing this game ever since. And what I love about this is that it's a perfect sort of antidote to the deeper, darker writing that I'm doing in my novels. When I'm writing for the video game, yes, there's light and shade. There are kind of there are dramatic moments in the game, in the cutscenes particularly, where, when we're sort of writing the cutscenes and you know, and the actors come into the studio with their mo mocap suits on and, and act out the script. And it, it's really it's really, really gratifying to see see it come alive in that way. But a lot of it is humor. There's a lot of humor that that I'm sort of trying to get into this game and I'm really enjoying it. You know, it's um because as I say, it sort of harkens back to my earlier writing, the, the Viking books, where there's a lot of Viking insults and bawdy jokes and, you know, pretty lowbrow humor, I have to say. But it's really good fun to write. And I think it's important from a sort of a mental health point of view that I get to to do that at the same time. In terms of the narrative, yeah, uh, it's it's a different thing because it's so collaborative compared to the novels where I'm just on my own. The game is very collaborative, obviously, because I can't necessarily write a scene if I don't know if the guys in Norway, if the, if the programmers and developers can actually do the mechanics for whatever it is that I'm thinking of. So I have to go, we, we're back and forth all the time about what we can actually do in the game. You know, is it is is it possible to, to, to have a character fight a wolf, for example, in this game? And then the designers will tell me yes or no or whatever. And, and if so, then I can go and write the scene. So it's a different experience, but it's actually really also nice to have an aspect of my writing job where I'm talking to other people, because as you guys know, it's, it can be very lonely, this, this business of ours. And, and I used to love that. I left the music industry, which was very noisy and chaotic. And I loved just being a writer and sitting on my own and, and doing my own thing. I loved it, but those days have actually passed now. And I, I actually would like to return to the world a little bit here and there. So, the gaming is good for that because I get to talk to other human beings. <laughs> but you, you've had a great relationship by now where you've got a great friend in in Philip Stevens, but a great sort of collaborative relationship with him. And you've done quite a few things over the years, haven't you? you did, I remember the first time I saw you guys working together, it was it was a poem you'd written about Harold Hardrada. Is that right? That's right. Yep. yep. And 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 he'd and then you sort of made a video and he produced it and acted in it and then but you've done a lot of, of things since do you think as a novelist it's useful you know for our audience i guess who you know that when you identify people who you come across who, who sort of somehow you click with creatively to kind of cultivate those relationships and that there's a positive feedback loop with those kind of collaborative relationships yeah i feel incredibly lucky actually that that, that phil and i found each other because we we are on the same wavelength and we've come to a point long since where we can 
discuss ideas and we're not, sh- we're not sort of embarrassed about an idea or, and, and sort of, or to say to the other, oh yeah, that's all right. But what about if we do this? And, and we have this kind of collaborative relationship, which just works. And, and that's, um, I think that's not always going to happen, you know, especially because in our job, you don't tend to get out and meet different people all the time. So if you do find somebody who sort of sees the world in the same way or roughly and kind of that you can vibe with creatively it's it's so important about we we bounce ideas around all the time whether it's about my novels or he's working with me on the game as well he's now he's now narrative uh, director of the game so he's directing all the cut scenes stuff like that so when it comes to the writing we can sort of discuss and plan that together so that then he knows how it's going to be shot with the actors and in the studio and all that kind of stuff so yeah, it's it's really important, and and as I say, it's just fun to sit on the other side of a FaceTime call and 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 tell sort of talk to each other in Viking accents and make which up Viking he does jokes. very well in your books. He's the <laughs> yeah. narrator of your yeah. books, isn't he? he? Yes, he's the narrator of my audio books as well. So yeah, yeah. When it comes to sort of opening your world up, and I I absolutely feel every. Every word of that, you know, with writing being a very small world sometimes and needing to introduce people back into it sometimes. Where does your relationship with readers come in? Obviously, you've had a great success and you have a great following. How much time are you spending and how consciously are you, you know, going out and engaging with readers, whether it's virtually or in person? I think it's hard in person these days because. I've been to plenty of talks where I've been invited to go and talk somewhere. And f- frankly, I'll turn up and there's sort of six or seven people there. That That's just the world. I, I did an event recently with an, with four other authors. And the only people that had turned up were p- people that come with one of us, you know, our family or whatever. And that was, there was four names there. And there was no, nobody had really bothered to, to turn up. Now, some of that might be to do with how an event is publicized, advertised, marketed, whatever. But I think a lot of it is to do with it's actually just very hard to get people to leave their home to come out and see authors. Mm. I think things like this haven't helped that, actually, because I think there's so many podcasts now. There are so many online channels where you can actually see authors, listen to what they've got to say, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or, or Twitter or X, whatever it's called now. And I think the mystique about authors has gone. And actually, I think the mystique was really kind of cool. <laughs> and if we could have turn if we could turn off all of this and just be authors and, pe- and and have that mystique again, I think that would be great. But now the cat's out of the bag and we're all sort of doing this sort of stuff. But I do think that doing interviews like this, well, why does somebody need to come and see any of us guys in a library? Because they can just click on, click on and watch, uh, you know, or listen to a podcast or whatever. So I think it's really hard actually to get people to engage or to go and engage with, with readers in real life. Obviously we can do it online and that's, that's good fun. And, And there's not an author alive who doesn't like to talk about their books, I think. So if you get a tweet from somebody mentioning your book, there's a little endorphin rush in there. There's, you know, it's a, it's a good thing. It's, um, I don't think we want to just sort of send books out into the void and never know if anybody's reading them or not. I think it's just certainly not for me. I, I, I don't do this just for the, for my own 
sort of state of mind. I do it because I want people to, I want to actually sell a ton of books. Actually, if I'm being completely honest, I'm, I'm commercially minded. I want lots of people to, 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 to buy my books and I want to make a living out of this. So you have to do what you can to, to, to sort of help that along. So it is great when we get to talk to readers, but it's not, it's, it, it doesn't happen in real, in the, in real, in real life very often. I don't think. It's a bit like the theme of Camelot coming back again of like, oh, it was so good before. If only we could go back, if we could put the genie back in the bottle, but, uh, alas, we can't. <laughs> well, I loved, uh, the, the, one of the things I loved about the, the music industry was the adrenaline rush of performing, of being on stage it, as sort of shy as I was and sort of how nervous I used to get. I still, once I was on stage, that, that rush, that feeling, the, the endorphins was absolutely amazing. And there aren't many rushes in this line of work. I don't think there's the day your book comes out. That's amazing, but only sort of in your own head. And you're sort of, my book's out today. Ah! You're ready for the trumpets to poke through the clouds and blow a fanfare, but nothing really happens. It's like, I, isn't it anticlimactic? It's massively anticlimactic. That's why I always have a launch party because at least I'm going to have a few there drinks and celebrate my book coming out. Yeah. So, so I make, I do whatever I can to make it a moment because otherwise it's just frustrating because what happens is when well, you go to a shop and you can't find your book in there and you go, we oh. <laughs> have to wait for people to read it before they tell you that they like it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, so dear. it's a bit quiet. And I, I, I miss the, I miss the rush of that sort of performing side of, of, of the, that other entertainment. Just, just on that. I know we can't go on that much longer because I'm sure we could talk for another hour, but um, you do have an interesting backstory and I, and I just need to, touch on it you just did the music industry you're you're in this um what do you call it a boy band a pop pop group it, it, it was a boy band there's no getting away from it back in yeah. the 90s called upside mm. down uh touring with you know people like take that the spice girls you know as you said massive extrovert world transferring yes. into this introvert world but as it were but at the same time you know a lot of people have described you in endorsements and blurbs and what have you a modern day scowled and you think you know that's like a viking singer storyteller but it literally you you literally are <laughs> you know your language the way you write is very poetic in in a lot of ways probably more i'd say that's a defining feature of your of your writing you've obviously got this music background and and you're a natural born storyteller and you sort of have this range you know i was looking at your website and seeing you know, this uh, graphic novel, you obviously your video gaming. Is there a lot going on in terms of just this creativity bubbling out of you? It doesn't really matter where it comes out. It's just, you know, it, it, it's important to uh, allow that, that to, to grow and, and have its expression. Yeah, I, I get excited by new things. And, uh, well, there are two aspects to this. I think one of them is... I actually worry about the state of publishing and the future of readers because I look at uh, young people. I've got a, a little boy who's 11 and he, he watches on his iPad. He watches YouTube videos. He doesn't, you know, we've got Netflix and Amazon Prime and, and, uh, Paramount Plus and all the, all these where he can just go and find all these TV shows, which is on films and movies. That's what I'd be doing. But he just watches like these little clips on, YouTube, like just clip after clip after clip, the sort of never ending scroll of random and quite odd videos. 
and and that seems to be kind of where it's going and and with young people's attention span and i i fear i i look at sort of young kids and this isn't about oh young young people today but i just think that we're encouraging that we're kind of raising a generation of people who won't have any form of attention span and i cannot imagine many of them actually sitting down to read a novel i i just can't and and so i fear that in the future i can't see who's going to be reading novels out of this this new generation i just don't i can't imagine it so so part of my scheme is to diversify and to do other things so hence the gaming and doing you know i because just don't think they can put all your eggs in the writing basket at the moment when you see the booker prize winner talking about you know struggling to pay his mortgage and stuff like that and you think it's hard it's it's hard to make a living out of writing stories and if you can diversify and look at other avenues because the world needs stories in in different forms uh, and and we are storytellers so let's not just narrow the focus and only you know if we're capable or if there are opportunities to explore other ways of being creative whether that's writing films trying film trying hand at film scripts or or, or video gaming or um graphic novels or whatever it is you can get that same sort of kick out of creating in other areas and also things that don't take a year and a half like a novel does you know something you can actually start and see the end of is is also appealing which is another reason why I loved writing the thriller because I didn't even know this before I started writing the thriller I was like how how long a thriller supposed to be and I looked into it and it said about oh to, sort of between 80 and 90,000 words and I thought what? That's half, That's only half a book. <laughs> oh, the joy! Of but I loved it. Different book. genre. I, I loved. I, I just loved that idea that I could actually sit down and, and and start writing and think. Oh, I can almost see the end of this project already. Whereas my other novels are just every day you sit down to write. It's just a drop in the ocean. Just one more drop in the ocean, and it, you never seem to be getting anywhere. And I see that little word count. Um, progress bar go kind of edging up so slowly it's almost impossible to see so shorter form projects and creative endeavors can be really really rewarding while you're waiting for the novel to sort of cook yeah absolutely well before we let you go where can people find you online so they can follow all these different things that you've diversified into and then of course also find your books as well um well my website is gileschristian.com and I'm on Instagram at Giles Christian and X at Giles Christian. And that's basically Giles Christian with a K. As long as you put the Christian with a K, you should find me. That's yeah. wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Giles. It's been such fun to see you. Well, I'm gonna see you I think we could have gone soon. on for an hour or more. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to see you. We're going to go out drinking with some Vikings, I aren't know, we? <laughs> we are. It's, it's yeah, the, one of the few perks of having a very populated marketplace is that you get lots of friends of other Viking authors. So. There you um, go. We're going to meet up for Chris or Yuletide, as we're calling it. Um, so I'll see you then. But thank you so much for spending time with us here on the History Quill podcast. It's been really, really insightful, fun, and just great to hear you unpack some of these ideas and your experience. Thank you, Theo. And thank you, Julia. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. 
Well, that was an absolutely fantastic conversation, and I can't wait to dive into it with you, Theo. There's so much to talk about there. But first, I think you're going to tell us about something that we all need to know. Indeed. Yes. Before we dive in, I just want to let all you listeners know about a special bonus episode of the History Quilt podcast available exclusively to our email subscribers. The episode is about how to succeed in historical fiction, and we're joined by two very accomplished historical fiction authors, Jill Paul and David Penny, who share with us the ingredients of their success and how you can succeed in the genre as well. To get the bonus episode, go to thehistoryquill.com forward slash bonus, find the link in the description, or just enter it into your browser. Yes, there is a lot of really great advice and insight in that bonus episode. We had a lot of fun recording it. So if you are a historical fiction writer, you won't want to miss it. Okay, back to this episode. Where should we where should we start? There is so much to talk about. And I feel like I say that every single time, but I really enjoyed this conversation because I felt like it was so wide-ranging. Yeah, I mean it's probably quite topical. It was epic, wasn't it? But it's interesting he 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 sort of he sort of shied away from wanting to sort of label his own work with that, but I suppose maybe it feels like a high bar or something. I don't know, but but his work definitely does meet that standard. It does have that that feeling to it. But I I, I liked what he was saying that it always starts small. You know, even if it ends up being this kind of grandiose story or involving grandiose events, it starts just with a character and like with an emotion or like with an incident between two people and it grows from there. And I suppose that's a good, you know, there's, there's, there's always this wrestle of like the extremity of your goal and the reality of how on earth do you get there? And often it can be quite daunting. I feel thinking, Oh, now the next novel, what's it going to be? How am I going to do it? And, but if you just have a sense of a shape of it, maybe, but then you just start out in this smaller scale then there's some there's something there that I think's of value, I think. I, I really, really liked what he said about sort of taking these big moments in history or these big stories and making them very intimate, focusing on a character or a group of characters. Because I think, at least my experience with writing World War II has very much been getting your arms around this huge subject, which people have written about since even before the war ended, and trying to figure out how to make that into a story that feels relevant to people who are reading it today, who didn't go through that experience, that can be really, really daunting. But if you focus down on character and, and understand who it is that you're trying to write about and what you're trying to say about them or what you're trying to put them through, I think that really helps focus the story, at least it does for me. And it also helps remind me that really ultimately novels that I really enjoy, often it's because of those characters who are really central to what's happening. And you have this very intimate relationship with the character as a reader as well. Yeah, I think it's it's got to be relatable, doesn't it? And and you're, the world that you're writing in is is so sort of, mad, I mean, it's the world war. <laughs> so it, it couldn't really be any bigger and it couldn't, the stakes couldn't be higher in a kind of storytelling sense. But at the same time, you've got to sort of thread that needle of, of one life or a couple of lives that are kind of making their way through these these great events. But he does that beautifully, I think. But it's, I, I think it's, Maybe it's his experience of his past career as a, a musician, but not only 
singer, you know, performer. He was also writing songs, as I understand it, as well. And so it's that sense of, you know, he, this freedom that he feels of just expressing his creativity, I thought was was really helpful. And obviously he doesn't feel limited by just sort of pigeonholing himself as a writer. He's he, he's He's been in these different um, sort of creative places and therefore in a way his landscape is a bit broader it felt like quite broad the way he was talking about you know what he does with his imagination as it were and where he's prepared to take it and i think there's possibly a lesson there you know whether you you may be a terrible artist or photographer or or love dancing but not very good at that you know there's always something about just giving vent to our creativity that I think will feed back into the stories that we want to tell as well. I don't know if you, I mean, you do uh, gardening, don't you? Is that, is that one of your things? Yes, it is. Although not as much um, in this, in this flat that I'm in right now, because we only have a tiny, tiny little back patio, but I have in the past and I, I do love it. And I love having a creative outlet. Um, I think there's often a compulsion with creative people to where that comes out in other Forms. So I also knit and I, I used to be a, a swing and blues dancer. And, you know, there's just really? sometimes That's it's so just cool. that, that. I would love to do yeah, that. Oh, <laughs> uh, it was it was so much fun. And you know what I really loved about it? Um, so I, I don't dance as much as I did um, when I was living in New York, uh, which funnily enough coincides with me starting to publish more and more. Turns out that if you write, it takes up a lot of time and a lot of focus. But I loved it when I was first starting out because I would spend all my day at my my day job as a journalist. And then I would spend all this time after work or on the weekends writing. And, and dancing was such a wonderful way to sort of have something creative be something physical also. So whether it's sort of cooking or gardening or doing something different, sometimes that can be really helpful. And ironically, I'm going to try to loop this all back around again. Great dancers are great storytellers as well. It's just in a different form. So I, I loved what he was talking about around gaming and telling story that way. And through his you know experience in, in the music industry, I thought that was a really interesting take on on what it means to be a writer and a storyteller. Yeah, and I think it was relevant in terms of, from a commercial sense as well. You know, it's a little bit sobering his his what he was saying about his daughter and and the attention span. And it's not just children either, is it? It's it's adults as well. That you know, as a novelist, you're competing on sort of multimedia plane, aren't you? In terms of basically what do you how are you going to hold someone's interest and the world is not the same as it was you know there's much more on offer than mere a, a big wad of pages and so yeah what can we do within ourselves like you know you start with a blank page as a novelist don't you and so in a way you kind of get used to the idea of bringing something out of nothing and trying and failing and failing again and maybe failing another time it, you know what i mean and yet you sort of there is some direction of travel and 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 maybe that's an encouraging thing ultimately that if you have this ability to and to to concentrate and to to tell stories that actually that can come out in so many different ways and in a way it makes that relationship with our ever shifting audience and you know the the, the way that they're evolving and they're changing um maybe as it creates opportunity as well as problems for us and you know it's up to us to to try and think around that and respond to it i suppose i think it just 
is a reminder that, you know, there's a lot of joy and a lot of wonder in being a writer, but there are also some commercial considerations and some business considerations if what you want to do is to be published and to have that be part of your income or supplement your income or be in your entire income. But I think, you know, I, I really enjoyed him talking about his Viking books and how, you know, there was a lot of joy there and, and, you know, a lot of fun. And you mentioned that, you know, there's a lot of fun in those books, very swashbuckling and, you know, writing can serve a lot of different purposes and can, can fill a lot of different emotional needs for the writer, um, but for the reader as well. And, and I think, I hope that when people listen to these episodes, uh, they're they're remembering that everybody is approaching this in their own way. Everybody is wants different things out of their publishing journey. If they even do want to be published, there there are some people where the satisfaction of having written and having written a book and completed a book is is the goal. And trust me, finishing the first book is such a huge milestone and such a huge moment, and and should be celebrated. Yeah, can you? I can remember the moment of finishing my first book. Can you remember yours? Was, yeah, was I it, can. Was, was there a promise of 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 like the industry already, or was it just purely for you at that point? So I I had been I started writing my first book in graduate school because I thought I was going to go out of my mind if I did any more work on my master's thesis. Um, so I just started scribbling stuff down, and I worked on that book for maybe three, two, three years off and on, picking it up, putting it down. And finally I decided I needed, if I was going to tell people that I wanted to be a writer in addition to being a journalist, I needed to actually like finish something. So um, I do remember I was sitting at my tiny studio kitchen table in my tiny studio in New York because that was the only place I had to work. And it was probably a Saturday night because I decided if I'm going to do this, I'm going to spend the time. And the time was, you know, nights and weekends. And I finished it and I kind of pushed away from my computer and I thought, well, that's really exciting. <laughs> I've never done that before. And it was terrible. I absolutely needed heavy editing, but it was done. And that was really, really thrilling. Do you have a, do you remember where, where you were? I, do, was, I was like? actually sitting exactly where I am now. So I'm in, a, in really? a, a little cottage on my family come from Norfolk, which is the east of England. So I'm up here visiting in this little cottage. And I used, when I was a in my bachelor days, so this was about 11 years ago, I think. Um, again, this idea that just basically grew and grew and eventually sort of got to the end. And it was about March time of whatever year it was. And it was actually quite a warm evening. And I basically put aside this cigar and I had a bottle of champagne. And I went out, I think I was literally in underpants and trainers and a shirt. And I just, <laughs> it was it was warm enough because it was, it was supposed to be a little bit ridiculous. And you know, had my cigar and my bottle of champagne, and I literally ran. I think I had it. Um, was listening to music as well, but basically running up and down, and this beautiful full moon pouring out on the landscape, quite warm, and just howling at the moon. <laughs> so, so that was like a quite uh, what's the word cathartic, you know. And, and I don't think any. I've probably not had any moment in my entire writing career that was as fun as that since. But anyway, it was. It was. It was memorable. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, I, I feel like I should have had champagne with me, but I think I was so broke at that time. It was not going to happen. So yeah, maybe it was, maybe it was Carver. Who knows? Anyway, it, it all got drunk, which I, th I don't think I've ever drunk a bottle of anything fizzy or bubbly 
just entirely on my own out of the bottle. That was a bit extravagant. Right there. No, I love it. I think you should celebrate things. And I, I liked what Giles said about sort of throwing himself a launch party because, you know, why wouldn't you? You should celebrate things. And, and I think little milestones, big milestones, you know, all of that. Yeah. And I know Giles, I think, does carry that with him. Like, I think he's got a levity to him, which which definitely comes through in some of the humor in his books as well. But also, he, he just feels like quite a buoyant character to observe as well in him, in himself. And, and, you know, I think that's, it's, it's nice to have friends in the industry like that who, who kind of make you see that there's some fun to be had here, as well as, uh, you know, all the struggles that one personally endures. No, there's, I mean, I know we talked about it a little bit in the Sid Young episode about, you know, writing community and, and critique groups and all of that. But I think there's nothing quite like another author who understands what you have just gone through and uh, understands a bit about the the world of writing uh, to to celebrate those moments with you. So when you can find them, you uh, you hold them close to you. I just had uh, my my five very close writing friends who I've been with since long before I was published. All of them were at my wedding. Those that had uh, have husbands, uh, the husbands were there. And there was something really special about having that moment and that celebration with all of them, knowing that we have this history together and we've seen each other go through all these different aspects of our career and try different things and you know successes and struggles. Well, we're going to have quite a, a collection of conversations in which we've gone through our, our struggles, you and I together. So yes, by the <laughs> it's end true. Of, by the end of the last season and the, and this next season. Um, but yeah, it is a joy to to you know meet with these other authors, talk to you about their experience, our experience. So yeah, onwards to the next episode. Absolutely. Well, thanks again to our wonderful guest, Giles Christian. I really, really enjoyed that conversation. And I think uh, Theo Theo is fully agreeing with me on that. That concludes our episode of the History Quill podcast. Before we go, I want to remind you to head over to thehistoryquill.com slash bonus to get our bonus episode on how to succeed in historical fiction, featuring our guest authors, Jill Paul and David Penny. It's essential listening for any historical fiction writer, so make sure you check it out. You can find the link to the episode in the description or enter it into your browser. And of course, wherever you're listening to this podcast, make sure you like, subscribe, and leave us a comment or review. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and we will see you next time. <laughs>